Chariot Developer News, episode number 64, for Monday, October 14th, 2013. In this episode, we talk about newly open-sourced analytics engine Precog, AngularJS versus Knockout, 10 reasons to use AngularJS, the loss of the cloud provider Nirvanix and what it means to their customers, the future of OpenStack, and writing iOS games in Ruby. The Dev News is sponsored by Hadle. Want to increase your team's productivity? Try Hadle. It's a question and answer system that lets people ask, answer, and rate questions. Internal company information gets hard to find, lost in emails, or lives only in experts' heads. Stop the repetitive question and answer sessions on topics they've already covered. Share that information with Hadle. It's like a private Stack Overflow or Yahoo answer site for your company. More information, including a free trial, at Hadle.com. That's H-A-Y-D-L-E.com. And by Chariot Education Services. Public and private training and mentoring in subjects such as Spring, Maven, Scala, Grails, Android, HTML5, and more. Inquire about private training by the developers bringing you this podcast, Philly Emerging Tech, and much more. We only teach the things we do. Visit us online at chariotsolutions.com slash education. Tickets are still available for the upcoming Data IO 2013 conference. That's happening on October 30th, 2013. Visit us on the web at emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com slash dataio2013. Hey, Joel. Hey, Ken. It's Monday. You have news time. Do you know what? You know what? It's always more wooden to do the same joke twice. That's right. But we're going to do it anyway. Hey, happy Columbus Day, unless you read the oatmeal. Um, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Theoatmeal.com. Um, so uh, let's see. So it's uh, Monday, October 14th, the Cherry Developer News, episode number 64. We're getting up there, man. We're, we're, we're in uh, Beatles territory now when I'm 64. <laughs> so um, let's start off with something techie, techie, techie. Uh, let's talk about Project Precog. What is Precog? So Precog is a... NoSQL or a schemaless, really, uh, analytics platform. So most of the time when you think about data analytics, you might think about uh, something relational database-backed, and then it produces like a lot of graphs, and there's like a lot of servers and a lot of churning. There might be some cubes involved or something like that, like a data warehouse. So Precog is this, or was this, software-as-a-service platform where you could throw a bunch of JSON in there, do some analytics. So normally, you know, with a lot of these tools, it's very much a relational schema has to be enforced. So Precog's big thing was, hey, We'll just take like all kinds of random JSON and allow you to start to make sense of it and and draw like these really nice graphs and do machine learning. Some pretty complicated stuff. Well, they've recently switched their business to make Precog the platform free open source, and it's pretty interesting because this kind of capability. I don't think there are a lot of other projects that duplicate what Precog did. Like some things, you know, like you might go build a library to do to solve X problem, right? But it's pretty difficult to go build a platform that does something with a pretty giant goal. In this case, this was obviously funded as a commercial venture. 
ventures. So that's kind of probably why it happened this way. Right. But the benefit is everybody, you know, the open source community. So it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, so what things can you do with this? Well, you can do common analytics like, you know, compute a sum and filter data and sort data. But then you can do things like reporting. It has a visualization API. And then you can do things like machine learning, linear regression, logistic regression, clustering. So there are machine learning platforms. And there are a lot of products that sort of do some version of machine learning. But you've got, like, things like Apache Mahal. And you've got, um, you know, uh, Weka, which is like this uh, learning kind of tool. But... This is a pretty significant product that is now open source. And if you look at their um, the GitHub project, so let me just go over there. It's cool because they lay out a roadmap and they're really kind of open about what's going on with the tool or the platform. So basically, you know, they said it was built to exclusive to be run in the cloud exclusively in a multi-tenant environment, and now they're they are transitioning to open source. So they had made some trade-offs that make sense in that case, but don't make it necessarily easy to run you know, if you're just running on your PC. So they are um, simplifying. So phase one of their platform or their roadmap is to simplify deployment so that you can run it locally easily. Phase two is to provide support for big data. So right now it runs like everything that can be run on a single machine. But that probably made a little bit more sense if you're out on a patch. You know, maybe on Amazon you're running some like mega EC2 giant size thing, but right. but now they wanted to compete with Hive, Pig, Hadoop. So phase two is going to start supporting a big data kind of thing, and um, you know I think it's one of those projects to watch. I'm going to play with it. You know you know it's going to be a little rough around the edges because they're transitioning from they run it to you run it. So that kind of operational stuff they're probably still not exactly. You know, it's probably not easy, particularly for you to run it, because it wasn't built from the ground up that way. Right. But um, I'm excited about the machine learning part. I'm excited about playing around with the graphing and the, um, you know, the ad hoc reporting, because all that stuff is hard to build and um, can take a lot of time. And the fact that you can throw in schemaless stuff, you know, makes me think. Hmm. What are all the things, you know, in your application or in my application, which is Hadel? What can we throw in there? That's you know, just sort of schemaless. We just throw things in there, and then we use you know its machine learning capabilities to to come up with some interesting answers, like categorization. So here's like a random thing, but you know, um, maybe we can do like mood analysis of people's posts. Like that question was angry. <laughs> you know, you know, and you know, and you need like some. That's categorization, like, right. lo- like loosely. Here's some text. Is that angry? Is it happy? Sure. Is it you know, and um, or the reporting part, you know, and um, you know, this is basically commercial grade. Or you know a, a pretty important platform, and now um, we can have at it. <laughs> Looks like it's written Scala, for what I'm seeing here. SBT, SBT, all over the place. Scala build tool. So, yeah, I mean, all the source code's available. GitHub.com/slash/precog/slash/platform, and there's also a, a website for it, precog.com, uh, and it does mention there's a a, a um, commercial version of it. Yeah, that's coming, like, so November 1st or something. So they're really kind of in transition, it seems like. Slam uh, Data Inc. is the company for the, you know, commercial support version, looks like. But what a cool project if somebody wants to really tear into something significant. That's great. Yeah, so, I mean, it looks like they're trying to say, let's open source it, and we'll sponsor the open sourcing again, like most things. Sponsor with a company that does service-related work, which is cool. Awesome. All right. Precog, check it out. All right. Um, let's see. I have an interesting... Okay, so first, um, we should probably talk about my evangelism and AngularJS being really, really biased. Um, oh, well. Um, <laughs> You're allowed to have opinions. If you don't like it, then you can bring me some news. Send it to at TechCast, please. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> so this is a decent article. Uh, basically, um, 
Actually, that is not the one I wanted to go to. Hold on. Uh, there is a article on AngularJS uh, about um, 10 reasons web developers would use uh, AngularJS. So I want to start there because it's an evangelism page, right? So you're going to see the things that people want to push at AngularJS for. Um, so we'll just kind of flip through these a few times. So this is by Jeremy Lickness, um, and uh, he's a MVB, a, a, a D-Zone Most Valuable Blogger. Um, I only chuckle because I have that too, and I, um, I have a shirt. I didn't wear it today, but it says dev in XML. Um, so the first thing is, is it says AngularJS gives uh, XAML developers a place to go on the web, which is, I guess, XML. Uh, what is it? The comment for XAML. Uh, it's basically XML to describe kind of a language for, for I guess, binding applications. Uh, Probably not the right term for it. But anyway, that was one that's not so important to me. Number two, AngularJS gets rid of ritual and ceremony. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the reason to go to Spring? Yeah. Pretty much. So, and, you know, if you're looking at Angular, it does, you know, data injection. Uh, you know, you can inject services and, and uh, components into each other. Um, you know, have very easy binding of things together. Uh, so that's number two. He also has some other things in here. Uh, handles dependency management, so you know they they have the ability for you to inject libraries into AngularJS and and use them as objects within AngularJS. Uh, they have things like uh, there's an Angular UI which uses um, uh, UI componentry from I think uh, I forget if it's it's jQuery UI or something. Uh, you can inject things like a testing service, that kind of thing. Number four, uh, express express the UI declaratively uh, and reduce the side effects of manipulating things like the DOM, uh, etc. So this will go on. You can read it up and see what you think. Um, again, this is a job at dzones.com. I'll post a, a note to it. Uh, but the reason I mention it is because I, in addition to the, the potential positives of that, we also have a good... Um, article series of eight articles starting comparing uh, Angular and Knockout. Um, and, you know, we mentioned before things like uh, to do MVC, which is where you build the same project in multiple, you know, uh, JavaScript front-end tools. Awesome site. It's a great site. Uh, this is a, a really nice kind of side-by-side -side comparison of Angular and Knockout uh, from a developer who kind of pulled down a number of these frameworks, took a look at them. His name is Eli Weinstock Herman. Uh, and this is on less than dot. Uh, he's a web developer. Uh, and so he has, I think he looked at, um, let's see, all the libraries that he's incorporated into the series that he's been digging into. AngularJS, Knockout, Knockout using external template engine, RequireJS, SammyJS, Durandal, Finch, Flatiron, ScriptJS, Jasmine, Jasmine Async, and Squire. Some of those are testing frameworks and such, but some of them are, you know, full framework stacks. Um, so he compared a bunch of them. He said, well, I'm going to basically narrow this down to Knockout versus Angular. Uh, and he has a couple of criteria. One is data binding. Another is validation, serialization, templating, modules and dependency injection. And then he's working on two additional posts, which I assume are going to be coming out soon because these seem to come out very quickly after each other from October 8th on. One on automated testing and one on SPA routing and history. Uh, but uh, so basically, if you go through it, um, and I'll post a link to this on blog.lessthan.com, um, he starts in with Angular and, and Knockout binding. Uh, the main difference there being that Angular wants to do instant two-way data binding to everything. So the minute you put something in the scope, uh, which is kind of their variable for the view, um, if I put an object in scope, let's say I create a JavaScript variable, 
for last name or, or even just a JavaScript object that has last name in it. And I bind that to an input box as value. The minute I start ch- typing something in the input box, it automatically updates. And so you can get around that. There was a Stack Overflow article on how to kind of like, you know, make it done uh, piecemeal uh, where you can click a button to trigger the data binding, uh, kind of like stepping it uh, back a little bit. Knockout, on the other hand, uh, you can bind data to fields, um, you know, bind, you know, regular data. um, And the way that works is that's a one-time read once. uh, So you can kind of output things to the object. Uh, You can then also bind observables. And in that case, the observables, um, basically, there's a data binding process that if you manipulate the thing that's being observed, then the objects are notified and they get updated. So just as an example of his, his uh, you know, comparison of the two, he has full chunks of code showing each of those features. Uh, and then um, he kind of goes into little uh, differences in the approaches. So, for example, uh, updates, full change or per key. Uh, knockout's default behavior for inputs is to update the backing value after the full input has changed, meaning you've typed a bunch of things and hit tab. Angular updates on individual key presses, and then he talks about that. Um, verbosity and error, and error handling, um, saying that knockout is more wordy for simple values. Um, you have to have more, you know, basically text around it to, to do that, whereas Angular has the double brace syntax or binding, uh, and so on. So that's one page. He goes into validation. Uh, Angular has kind of a comprehensive validation system. So he talks about that and shows some samples and how to do kind of the built-in validators for things like ranges and, you know, patterns and such. And then he says, what about writing custom validation? So he shows a sample of that in Angular. Uh, And then with Knockout, Knockout itself doesn't have validation, but there's a project on GitHub called Knockout Validation, which compares favorably. So he takes a look at that as well. So a lot of these things he goes through nice kind of, um, you know, here's how it's done in one, here's how it's done in the other, and then he brings up the uh, comparisons. So pretty interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'll leave that with you. Um, let's see. Why don't we go to let's, – let's talk about cloud providers. So um, – I guess one of the the risks of putting things in cloud is when they die, right? Yeah. So in the news uh, recently, cloud provider Nervonix uh, is shutting down. And the thing that, and they're I guess they're seven years old. And the thing that kind of shocked people, or that was in the news about that, was that they only gave uh, people a few weeks to to migrate their data off. So this is sort of everybody's like. I told you so if they're against cloud providers is that your cloud provider would just go out of business and you would be sort of held hostage. So I see one sentence in the note from uh, that they got from, from you know, the customers got uh, on their front page of the website. It says, we have an agreement with IBM and a team from IBM is ready to help you. Yeah, um, sure. Wow. So that's <laughs> weird. Um, yeah. I don't know what happened, but this is this is not going to help uh, people who are at their business going, hey, we should move everything to the cloud. Wow. And somebody's going to go, um, yeah, I totally got it. I mean, not that I have a problem with IBM, but I mean, are you ready to suddenly create an agreement with IBM to get your stuff off of their system and onto something else? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. sure what their, their service is like to begin with, but that sounds scary. So, so I guess this is also going to hurt um, kind of small to mid-range cloud providers. Sure. Where people are worried that this might happen. But there's kind of a counterpoint to this or something that goes along with that, and that's OpenStack. So okay. there's another article that's sort of hand-in-hand hand with that that says OpenStack's future depends on embracing Amazon now. And this is an open letter to the OpenStack community. So to back up, what is OpenStack? Mm. Well, it's a set of APIs that are meant to be cross-cloud platform 
provider, so a cloud provider platform or something like that. Bottom line is, <laughs> you know, if you use Amazon, and, and we do for Hado, and it works great, but if you use Amazon, that is like the definition of vendor lock-in, like you're using their format, well, you're using their APIs. Step back for a second. So if you just purely create an Amazon EC2 server that's Linux, mm-hmm. and you purely use it for the Linux you know, and this has been some of the debate that people are like, what do I embrace from the cloud? If you're just purely using the, the Linux VM and you're installing everything yourself, you have some safety in that well, you could pick it up and move it. But the minute you start using like their database, their you know queuing service, that's really what we're talking about, right? Yeah, and and you're not like, for instance, we're not like totally locked in. Like there's right. certainly things, but we use you know different parts of their services. If you use, um, you know, their, their EBS, their disk volume or S3, their, you know, right. their storage. So it's pretty tough to use, uh, like Amazon and not use any of their APIs. Right. You could maybe sort of do that, but probably not. You're like taking, you're giving up a lot of the advantages you have. Exactly. You're going to use some things. And, um, so you couldn't just like flip a switch and reinstall. It may not be like the end of the world, but it would be some work to go to a new provider. But with OpenStack, it would be flip a switch. Like you would be building it in such a way that, you know, it's a software layer that sits between you and your provider that provides a consistent set of APIs. It's a great idea. I believe that Rackspace was the person, was the company that pioneered that, or at least they have a big hand in it. But kind of the flaw to it has been, according to this this author, and it seems to make sense, that OpenStack sort of been positioned as the Amazon and Google App Engine alternative. Mm. Not um, So, you know, this is if you want to, you know, the sort of proprietary versus open standards debate that's always been around um, on all kinds of things. And this person is making the case that, um, that actually OpenStack could thrive more if it embraced Amazon. And the things that they're saying, to me, kind of make sense. So what is this person saying? Well, a couple things they're saying are that Amazon dominates the public cloud. So, you know, they're like the 800-pound gorilla, you know, and his 20 friends. Like, they really do dominate. <laughs> <heard that. laughs> you know, they do dominate, like, the, the public cloud. So, um, you know, you can ignore them, but you're ignoring a huge market segment. The other thing they said is, you know, that this person's saying is that, and this is from cloudscaling.com, the blog, uh, is that Amazon controls the innovation curve in the public cloud. It is true, and this author says, that they come out with a mind-bogglingly fast set of new features. I mean, like, every week I'm getting a newsletter from these guys, and they're saying, and, and now we have, you know, Amazon Flippity Flu, which ties your <laughs> shoes. I mean, and they're really good products. I mean, I don't... I mean, it's are, true, yeah. They're rolling this stuff out fast and aggressively. But his point is that OpenStack can dominate the hybrid cloud future. So what's that mean? Well, I really do think um, the, the you know that the, a big sort of market or trend or whatever you want to say is is the hybrid cloud. So you have some stuff running on your data center and your company's private network, and then you have some stuff running on a public cloud provider like Amazon for cost savings. So some of the things like the customer database, you're never going to run that on the public cloud. But you you could run all kinds of other things. And, um, you know, there's there's companies now that, that there's a lot going on with, with this hybrid public-private cloud. And it makes a lot of sense because for certain companies, they're never going to put everything in Amazon. But yet, it's not an all-in-one. So if OpenStack could work for both, then that really simplifies it. So now say I'm giant company, you know, XYZ, I want to create a public private cloud. Well, I don't want to have to create like VMware for my private cloud and Amazon for my public and have like this whole kind of mismatch. If I use OpenStack and if OpenStack now embraces Amazon, then I can, I can basically, it doesn't matter where it runs. If it runs internally, if it runs externally, I can still use this common set of infrastructure as a service APIs, which is really what OpenStack and Amazon both provide. So in other words, you would say, I need to send a queue message out or I 
I need to find a file in you know cloud storage, or, or, and you would potentially set up adapters or whatever you want to call it to connect your S3 service or your or what have you, your Amazon Simple Queue. Yeah, or even like on a more basic level, um, you know, what is the call for, what is the actual API for spin me up a server? Right. You know, and spin me up a server make could be generic. some, yeah, some generic call. And if I can, I can make, I can write a script that spins me up a server, you know, in my local data center or spins me up a server at Amazon, but it's not like two different kind of calls. You know, the thing is we have this concept that's called, you know, like specs. Yeah, APIs. APIs. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we have it in Java EE. We couldn't, Joel and I, we've been doing Java since our hair was, well, your hair is still not gray. Uh, but you, time will come. It will come. Um, but, you know, since my hair wasn't gray, he remembers the time. And, uh, you know, we, we've been working with Java stuff. Well, I mean, Servlet was a spec as part of the Java Enterprise Edition. And it's been, you know, every year they have updates to these specifications and all the vendors play. And that's why Java thrives, if you think about it. Um, it thrives because you have choice, mm -hmm. you know, and you can move from container to container, and they all know that, so they have to provide the best implementation possible, and there's competition there. Um, but this is kind of like, you know, I'm selling an apple or an orange, and, you know, you, if, unless there's some way where you can switch from one to the other, that competition is hampered. And in a way, I guess it's more like... Maybe it's not a perfect analogy because we did have all those enterprise edition differences from platform to platform. Mm -hmm. So you did have to kind of modify your EJB stack. You had to modify the way you look up things. You had to you know change, tweak your drivers, tweak your stuff when you move from server to server. Less so now with something like Spring. Yeah, I mean, and then and yeah, there was the abstraction layer. There were problems. Yeah, and Spring did solve that. There were problems with the servers not um, implementing because it's tough when you have standards and innovations sort of don't always go together. Right. So like the 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 vendors want to different differentiate themselves. Amazon's coming out with, you know, service of the week. Right. And so they want to differentiate themselves. But you can do both and you know and you can have standardization and, and it's like JPA versus Hibernate. Yeah. Like and that's kind of where yeah. you know the industry has kind of accepted the JPA rollout. So you can code your stuff in JPA and Hibernate has to play along and yes you can get your unwrapped connection and mess with it. Um, and any features that Hibernate innovates are going to eventually possibly get folded in but don't have to be. Um, yeah, I mean, it, and, and a lot of apps can just deal with a standard stack. Yeah, so it would be neat if the open stack community, but, you know, you don't know everybody's motivations and what they're trying to do. But if they, if they took this person's proposal and they said, I mean, basically he says, you know, at the end, Amazon and Google are our friends because they're spreading awareness and adoption of cloud computing. They're making the pie bigger for us all. And, you know, he, I think the, that he's right on with that. So uh, yeah. interesting article to the, to the open stack community and saying, hey, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's dominate yeah. the hybrid cloud. Because I think hybrid cloud is going to be a huge Right, right. Yeah, good. That's a, that's an awesome one to think about. Absolutely. Alrighty. Uh, do 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 do. So, let's talk about. Do we have anything left? <laughs> it's uh, been one of those weeks. Uh, iOS we have games. One more. So let's talk games and Ruby, man. Games. So, yes, everybody likes to write games. We so, do. Um, this is something that was a, a recent InfoQ article, and it was on uh, an example of writing iOS games in Ruby. So let me just pull this up yeah. here. So this is developing iOS games in Ruby, and it shows this is from Sam uh, Brian Sam Bodden, the mm -hmm. founder of Integralis, which I'm not sure what that company is, but uh, maybe a game maker. And uh, he was demonstrating how to use Ruby Motion. Now Ruby Motion is not new; you probably have heard of this, but it's interesting that it's come back in this for, article. For those who haven't, let's. Let's talk yeah, about it. Yeah, so Ruby Motion is a Ruby implementation for iOS and um, and OS X, and basically it runs on top of Objective C. So so the bottom line is, so I'm going to make a statement that's 
my personal opinion and not reflective of my employer. <laughs> uh, iOS or Objective C syntax is terrible. <laughs> We're going to talk to him after. <laughs> so terrible. Objective it C is. gives you all the benefits. It's compiled, yet it can still have like crazy runtime errors. So it's like if you're, you know, it gives you like all the downsides yes. of a compiled language and none of the benefits of like a dynamic language. I'm, you know, it's terrible. So, and everything starts with NS because it's like, it, it's next, just next step. Oh my word. Yes. It's like trivia. So. If you feel the same way I do about Objective C, it's a barrier. I love my iPhone, I love my Apple devices, but you know I don't like to program to them. And Ruby Motion lets you use Ruby. Now Ruby is, regardless of any of your opinions, it is a beautiful language. Like so, whether or not you want to use Rails or you want to do this, like certain languages are beautiful, and Ruby's one of those syntactically pleasing, easy to look at. Okay, and so um, <laughs> you can use Ruby to code your Objective C or basically code iPhone apps as opposed to using uh, iOS. This is a neat trick, and now you do have to buy this this Ruby Motion thing, but it's really honestly cheap. It's like two hundred bucks per developer. Well, you know, if, if you're actually going to be like make a living at this, you know, 200 bucks is really nothing. And you get this cool runtime and then you can build stuff in Ruby. So, and they is have it interpreting Ruby at the runtime or is it compiling it down to objective C code? Ruby is beautiful. Uh. Can we just stick at that level? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it's busted. <laughs> okay. busted on that. I don't have a freaking clue. No. But, um, it, it, <laughs> it does say it's no, I have no idea. And even from what either. it says, that's On cool. GitHub, though, they have the uh, the cool thing is so this guy wrote Tetris in Ruby Motion, Ruby Motion Tetris, and he put it on GitHub, and so you can you know you can kind of cruise through it, and it's uh, you know it's interesting, It'll give you an idea of what it would be like to actually write um, you know a fairly an okay complicated game Tetris uh, in Ruby Motion. So just cool and just a reminder out there that you may have been wanting you may be a Ruby developer wanting to get into iOS. You may be an anything else developer and not you saw Objective C and we're like, eh, this looks a little scary. Check out Ruby Motion. And you know, click on the source code for that game and flip through it. I can see why he likes it and it's pretty. It is. <laughs> it's nice. It doesn't have like that weirdo yeah. C pointer stuff. Yeah, God. No, I mean, I, I would say that if you had to pick, and you, you know, you were sitting there, and you were in the firing squad, and and to survive it, your answer would be which language you rather program in? Would it be Ruby or I? I would take the death penalty if it was the wrong one. If they liked Objective C, I probably would say go ahead and kill me. You know, and there's people who please must don't put like me it. in that test. Please don't put me in that test. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's I cool though. I'm, I'm actually I'm excited because I learned Ruby a little bit ago. Yeah. And uh, I'm excited to see if it's easy to hack. You know, hack some iOS apps. Um, it looks pretty cool. Well, I'm going to give it. I'm going to use that as an option. This is you won't believe the segue I have here. <laughs> this is magical. Um, so that's the end of the dev news. If you want to jump off now, but before you leave, um, we have a developer news segment coming up. Uh, I'm interviewing someone this week uh, on the of all things uh, of of the. I'm going to call this grokification of languages mm -hmm. on the ability to understand and cognitively digest code from different types of programming languages. Hmm, that's there's cool. A, yeah, there's a guy that two of our consultants met out in Java 1, uh, and we're going to talk to him. And so uh, look on our Chariot uh, TechCast feed uh, for that probably sometime next week, the week after. should be very interesting. And he basically went through all sorts of analysis to find out what makes a program language easy to read and easy to program in. Interesting. And I think Ruby was way up there on the list of, cog you know, cognitable languages. That's not even a word, but I'm going with I it. I like it. 
Uh, so it's really important, too. I need to get a good night's sleep that night so I can really interview him and sound like I have a brain cell. Because <laughs> it's going to be a tough interview, if not. <laughs> so that'll be interesting. So, so that's coming up on there. So how do we get our podcast, you say? How do we get Chariot Solutions podcast? Well, a couple things. You can go to emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com, uh, and you can click on our podcast and screencast uh, icon or drop down and bring it up and pick the Dev News, which is what you're listening to right now. You can pick the Chariot TechCast, which is an interview show, talks about technical projects in open source. You know, if we break off one of these subjects and go talk to one of the programmers, we'll put it on a TechCast. Uh, and you can also go and you can grab um, our, our newest podcast, which is the our Chariot Business of Technology podcast with Tracy Wilson-Rossman. So that's where you go for this stuff. Uh, you can also go see our screencasts of things like ETE and all of our other conferences. Uh, and you can actually look at the video from those conferences and watch 37 videos from the one from April that had fantastic uh, talks on it. And uh, that's it. So for Monday, October 20, uh, 14th, 2013, that is the developer news. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And go code something, would you?